Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy B. Wilson. And today we have an author interview for you. And it's one that I'm really delighted to share with our listeners because as I read Rinkerbuck's new book, The Oregon Trail, I got more and more excited about speaking with him. He is a really compelling writer, and he has this personality that just shines through in the pages of his work. In this book, Buck talks about a long journey that he and his brother Nick took by mule-pulled-covered wagon, and they retraced the steps of the pioneers who traveled from Missouri to Oregon. So, as you can imagine, the kind of person who thinks that would be a fun thing to do is quite interesting. So we're going to jump in. And before we start, I want to make a quick note. Uh, the sound quality on this one is not ideal. Uh, awesome producer Noel and I and Rinkerbuck were kind of calling each other back and forth trying to get a good connection and we had some trouble. So uh, bear with us. It's not as perfect and crisp and clear as we like, but oh man, he says some fantastic stuff. So I hope you enjoy it and we're going to hop right in. So first, we are so excited to have Rinkerbuck on the show because you are a history lover. So this is like an extra treat for us. Um, and I first want to jump right into your new book, The Oregon Trail, and some of the stuff in it. But because I know that you are a, a very erudite man with a lot of history knowledge in your noggin, you know, feel free mm-hmm. to, to go down whatever path you like. Um, one of the first things that I wanted to talk to you about, it's really not a particularly important part of the book, but I found it so charming. There's a phrase that comes up early in the book to describe having an adventure, and it's seeing the elephant. And could you talk a little bit about the etymology of that incredibly charming phrase? Yeah, it is It is a great phrase. And it's interesting because in the 19th century, if you um, asked what that was, everyone would have known. So. It's a colloquialism that we've lost, but everyone would have known, but also the meaning of the term changed over time. So seeing the elephant, we're not positive about the etymology, but we think it derives from living in rural areas of the country on lonely frontier areas, because remember by the 1820s or 1830s, Ohio and Indiana, Michigan, places like that, which was called the old Northwest, um, they were frontier areas, and they were reasonably settled, but people lived on remote farms. And so it was a big treat once a, price, once a year, maybe every other year, that you would get to go to the circus. Uh, there were all these traveling minstrel shows and circuses, and even on the Mississippi River, there were boats, flatboats that went down, and you could go watch Shakespeare. Fascinating. But um, going to see the elephants means that you would get into town early when the uh, parade arrived, when the um, circus parade arrived, and usually the um, circus uh, wagons would stop a mile or two out of town and they'd march all their animals, everything they had, into town to try and attract um, as big an audience as they can for the circus before they put up the tent. So going to see the elephant was um, taking a big <laughs> break from the ennui and the boredom of farm life, going into town, which could be very far from your home at that point. And sitting there and seeing elephants, which, of course, was not something that you normally saw, and the kids always look forward to it. So that was the meaning originally. You're going to sort of take an adventure. You're going to see something you've never seen before or have a break in life and something exciting. 
And as it evolved over time, for the pioneers we talk about, I'm going to see the elephant, which means I'm going to cross 2,100 miles from the Missouri River to the uh, Columbia River, which is six present-day states, and hit the Oregon or the California Trail. And over time, because so many people died of cholera, and uh, after the Civil War, there were Indian attacks because we had decided to slaughter the buffalo to make the area better for farming. And, and that, of course, uh, uh, turned the Indians hostile. Um, there were perilous, and, and I do mean perilous, river forts and that sort of thing. So going to see the elephant came to mean later in the century uh, taking a daring adventure that was risky and might be more emotionally supportive and life-changing than faith. So someone who's going to see the elephant is sort of stepping into the wilderness, and it could be any wilderness. You might be going to see the elephant because you've decided to do something crazy that your family doesn't expect you to do, like becoming a minister or something. So it implied a journey of many different uh, kinds, but particularly sort of a philosophical or psychological one. And you decided, and it became the uh, tale that's told in your new book, to go see the elephant in the form of taking on the Oregon Trail. And the last documented crossing of the Oregon Trail before yours was more than a 100 years ago in 1909. And, of course, it's changed a great deal in the last century. So there is really not a guidebook to tell you how to do this. And I know you had to figure out a lot as you went. So what sorts of changes do you did you have to make to your game plan along the way? Sure. Well, one thing, let me just make clear, because a couple of people have written in Amazon and, and everything and said, well, in 1993, there was a sesquicentennial crossing of the Oregon Trail, blah, blah, blah. Um, but to me, those don't count. And we said we were maybe only unassisted crossing. There, there have been very few crossings of the whole trail. But what people are generally referring to is you can pay $1,000 and go out and pay a Wyoming outfitter and he'll take you out for about 10 or 15 miles on the trail all day, and you, you have this very rugged pioneer experience in a covered wagon with horses, which in the 19th century nobody used horses. They either used mules or oxen. And then at night, you gather around, and they roll in the RVs, and you can take a nice shower and maybe sleep in an air-conditioned room, and the meals are catered and, and all this kind of thing. And we didn't do that. I didn't want to have anything to do with that kind of uh Ironically, they call themselves reenactors, but they're not reenactors. Um, so we designed a trail cup that went along with us. Um, it's like a commissary cart, a two-wheel cart that we pulled behind the wagon. It had the ability to carry about 1,500 to 2,000 pounds of supplies, 100 gallons of water, and all this stuff. So we were independent. We were free of motorized support. So, And we certainly were the only ones to have done that in 100 years. So the kinds of changes we had to make, the trail is 2,100 miles um, all the way out to Oregon, uh, mostly across really dry country and high deserts in Wyoming and Idaho and that sort of thing. So the kind of changes, um, and, and about 1,000 miles of the trail is now paved with small two-lane blacktops, uh, farming country roads, and then uh, another 1,000 miles of uh, ruts. And occasionally, especially in eastern um Nebraska and eastern Wyoming, occasionally you do go to small farming towns and that kind of thing. So we had a rear view mirror. Uh, we had LED safety lights. We had that orange 
triangular thing that you see on the back of tractors to, to warn traffic. And the guy that um, made our truck up and restored our wagon, because we did take this trip in an actual 19th century Peter Shetler wagon, um, he was complaining and it was kind of like, well, those aren't period details. I mean, nobody crossed the plains in the rear view mirror. And we were making a modern crossing. What is the trail today? And what is the history of the trail? And we didn't have any, you know, and they said, well, where's your period dress? Where's your period dress? <laughs> and I don't want to, I don't want to tell you the answer that my, uh, my sort of profane and sarcastic younger brother uh, gave to that when they asked him where his period dress is. <laughs> but, um, and so, you know, we just went around the corner. You know, we went like five miles up the road and pulled off to the side and took out our toolkits and put on our rear view mirrors and our LED lights and, and everything like that. So there's safety things like that. Um, uh, the art, one thing that was very important and that I explained in the book is it's something called a tongue reliever. The tongue being the very heavy pole in the front of the wagon that hangs off the collars of the mules. And in the 19th century, you can hardly ever see a picture or a diagram of a wagon without this spring and chain device that comes down from the wagon and holds the pole up because the weight of that pole all day on the mules um, will tire out their shoulders and give them uh, shoulder sores quicker than uh, their, their legs would even tire out from all the distance you're going. And nobody knew how to build one. Nobody, nobody knew. Uh, I'd seen a picture of one and I'd seen an actual one on a wagon in the Smithsonian Institution once. So I just did it from memory. And uh, it, was, it was something that made our trip possible um, because we, we got the weight of that pole off the mules. And um, so there were all kinds of little mods like that. One other change I'll tell you about just because it's fun is we ended up not using, we had no technology. I mean, half the time, you don't, uh, you don't need GPS if you're moving at four miles an hour. <laughs> and, but flashlights, Coleman lanterns, any kind of artificial light that we had, the wagon just creaks and groans. There's no springs on it. Everything breaks. You're back to store for the first couple of weeks until those muscles get built up. And so even a flashlight wouldn't work after a couple of days. So um, we just started living um, sun up to sundown. You know, when it got light in the morning, it was three five, we woke up and harnessed the mules, made a little breakfast, and jumped off. And when we got somewhere around 7, 7.30 at night, um, sunset tends to be a little later out west in those northern um, latitudes. So when um, it looked like sunset was about an hour away, we pulled over and ate our dinner and washed the mules and stuff like that. So we lived, those are the kind of changes. We didn't, um, we didn't, we didn't live with many modern conveniences, particularly light. And, and we learned, hey, you don't need it. I'm, I'm just thinking about how much I realize that, uh, the world is completely different. Like if we lose power and I don't have light. So it's, uh, fascinating to think about, like where you just reach a point of, that's fine. No light is okay. We can keep going. Yeah, I'm, I'm independent of all that stuff now. I feel like I've been gloriously liberated. I can easily imagine what Rinker's brother Nick said when he was asked about where his period dress was. Um, but Tracy, do you think you could possibly go for several months traveling cross-country without any of the niceties and without any of your technology? That actually sounds really liberating. It sounds terrifying to me. Nobody could email me. 
I will say this. That's kind of what I like uh, about when I do things like go deep sea fishing with my dad is that there's no connectivity, but it's only for a day. Yeah. The vacation that I took uh, at the beginning of this year, I intentionally had no Internet at all. And I did not I didn't connect to the outside world in any way. But I had lots of other niceties. So it's it's the it's the being disconnected from things that sounds liberating. I probably would be I would get very tired of cooking over a fire after a while. Yeah, I think I'm such an information junkie. I can't kind of go without being able to look something up when it occurs to me. But before we get to this next bit of our interview with Rinkerbuck, let's pause for a quick word from one of the great sponsors that keeps us going. Now we will pick up with our interview with Rinkerbuck, and we're going to talk in this next segment about all the supplies that got loaded into their wagon initially. I know you had packed a lot of supplies that you ended up deeming unnecessary and kind of ditching along the way, just as the pioneers that were doing this trail in the 1800s often found that they had things that they could not keep carrying with them. And I know you have mentioned that in some areas where the trail is still remote and largely unchanged over the years, you sometimes are following a debris trail. And I I think I, I heard you mention in one interview that you had seen like a piano on the trail. And I'm just wondering what the sort of most odd or surprising thing you saw out there was? Well, first of all, I thought that I was such an erudite and smart guy, and I I read all these books first and read all the Pioneer Journals, and they talk a lot about how they overloaded their wagons. One reason they overloaded their wagons was that the outfitters and the merchants in the jumping-off towns along the Missouri River um, would use a lot of scare tactics to tell people, you know, you better... uh, you better take at least one big barrel of bacon for each kid, you know. And the kids are going to get to Oregon, you know, like looking like baby Huey, you know. But, um, so I then made this same mistake. And, and there's a funny passage in the book where I talk about, you know, waking up the first morning after we're traveling and realizing I had way too much gear. And, um, you know, Holly, I mean, just kind of give me a break here. It was, it was pretty touching that I, thought that I needed a shoeshine kid and and my Brooks Brothers bathrobe, you know, to leave. Well, you were going to continue a you, gentlemanly life even on the road, roughing it. I can respect that. Yeah, you see, <laughs> I think what it was, yeah, yeah. I think what it was is I I, I was I wasn't quite a pioneer yet, and I, and I was thinking, well, my old li- I'm bringing my old life with, you know. And then you get out there and and you realize your old life has been eradicated. You know, think new. For, for instance, crossing Wyoming. We all got to take showers, and that's my whole life. And everything. But crossing Wyoming took us 29 days, about 450 miles, took us 29 days. And most of that was on original ruts in the high desert with nothing left. So 350 miles, we did pass two towns. And um, one town had uh, 400 people in it, and the other town had three people in it. So what we learned about the pioneers, which is fascinating, is there's still a lot of archaeological digs and stuff up there. And it is true that the pioneers um, could navigate all the way to Oregon by the 1850s after the trail was premature, just by following the debris pile. It could be the carcasses of all the animals from the year before and that sort of thing. But there's a lot of archaeological digs out there, and uh, people go in with uh, metal detectors and stuff. And there are, especially below places like Rocky Ridge or Big Hill in Idaho, where it was really a perilous uh, descent down through some tough terrain, 
Uh, there are places where you can just turn on your metal detector now, and you're going to find old wagon parts, old buckets, old um, you know ammo belts and stuff like that. So, um, it, you know, 150 years later, you're still in, in this very dry climate. Of course, you're still finding the remnants of the original pioneers. That's so amazing. Um, and you originally intended to take this trip solo, which was something that you eventually recognized as delusional, as you put it. And, right, then, right. and then your brother, Nick, who is a really accomplished uh, mechanic and craftsman of many varieties, insisted on joining mm-hmm. you. And, you've said, and a great horseman. Yeah, and you've said many times that you absolutely could not have done this trip without your brother. But just as a speculative thing, I wonder how far you think you would mm-hmm. have gotten had you gone on your own to begin with. I think I probably would have gotten about, you know, 100 miles or so, three days of handling these cantankerous mules and everything and harnessing all three of them up by myself every day and then reach the conclusion that I better hire a cowboy. <laughs> um, and, you know, I would have had to find somebody out there. I, I actually was looking for, for people, and um, I, I think what the trip demonstrates this way is that if you take a big risk, um, th- things do work out. Um, I mean, I had a lot of planning into it, and I wasn't completely spontaneous about it, but... Um, Things just worked out. My brother had broken his foot um, in a construction accident in Maine. He was supposed to be recuperating, but he told the doctor, um, well, I think I'll take a little trip out west with my brother. Would that be all right? And, you know, <laughs> they signed off all his forms at the Veterans Administration. Well, but, no, without him, I, I never would have made it. And it just shows you, I think, the first line of the book, the first line of the book is to the effect that naivete is the mother of adventure. And if you're not naive, if you're not willing to realize that most of what you need to know you're going to learn once you get out there you'll never take these trips so i was very lucky that my brother heard i was going and and said you know i'm coming that's it you know so he kind of saved me that way uh and there's this juxtaposition throughout the book of the historical and the modern that plays out in a number of ways but one of the major ways that Mm -hmm. really struck me is is what we've been talking about that some on some areas of your journey you're traveling basically on interstate and on others you are on the original ruts that have been there since this you know whatever part of the trail you were on was forged and i know you have great knowledge of history um, and of those that traveled these trails before you, but as you were forced to figure out ways to navigate both the old and the new along the way, did you get a new sense or a new appreciation for the pioneers that originally traveled along these routes? Sure. Most of the wagon trains had experienced um, wagon guides along. Uh, there were a lot of, fur- the, the Oregon Trail was actually the old fur trapper route that the fur trappers followed west up into the Rockies, into the great Beaver country, um, after the Lewis and Clark expedition and the Louisiana Purchase. Um, so they had the advantage, and, and a lot of those fur trappers became uh, wagon masters because they it was this very organic thing, and, and they sort of led the pioneers across because they knew the roots. The Mormons, who were the most organized on the trail, um, of course, they... 70,000 Mormons crossed between um, uh, 1847 and uh, roughly 1870, 1880, uh, because they were persecuted back in the Midwest where they had lived at the time. And they they were the only group to have organized um, 
actual professional wagon masters, and they were sent back east every every year after the wagon train started to Salt Lake, and all the wagon masters would make uh, sort of a perilous late fall crossing, risking hitting snow and that sort of thing, uh, to get back east so that they could leave the next train uh, the next time. So they they actually had pretty good guides, um, and we didn't we didn't have that. And there's a lot of places where the trail is marked uh, or marked poorly, but it's marked in such a way that uh, granite or um, uh, metal markers are way hidden up in the wilderness, up in the foothills. So I had to walk ahead of the wagon a lot, and uh, I, I estimate that I walked at least 700 miles of the trail to scout those areas. The other hazard that we faced um, was that um, in a couple of places, we actually were never on interstates. We were always, um, you know, state or county roads, two-lane blacktops, but they went right along the old ruts that pretty much parallel to them. But uh, a couple times when the interstates came through, like uh, Route 25, which is the main northwest route from Texas to Montana, that blocked our way in uh, Wyoming and Route 84 and uh, uh, 86 in uh, Idaho and Oregon. And so I had to discover routes around that while still staying on the trail. Unfortunately, and this is what I'll explain in the book, fortunately, those were the very areas where um, there were cutoffs or alternate routes. There were um, 40 major cutoffs of the trail. The pioneers kept experimenting with slightly quicker ways to get there, where they were finding better terrain, or the rivers had overflowed that year, so they went a slightly different way. And, for instance, in Wyoming, when we were blocked by Highway Interstate 25, uh, I had read about the child's route, and a couple of ranchers in there told me, well, just take the child's route, or the North Bank's route, and uh, here's how you get up there. And so we just took a right and headed up into the wilderness and, you know, four days later and, you know, I used all the standard things of navigation. You know, I'd climb high in the morning and take a compass bearing on the Platte River and then just follow that down, down below for a few hours and then climb again and make sure we're in the right place. So all the um, alternate routes and cutoffs uh, really helped us because I knew about them and I was able to find them. Uh, I personally cannot imagine, even for a minute, trying to find my way in the situations that Rinker and his brother were navigating. We're going to hear a lot about mules in the next segment that comes up. But before we get to that, Tracy, would you like to have another word from one of the great sponsors that keeps this show going? Yes, please. As promised, it is time to talk about some mules. Rinker devotes a lot of space in the early part of his book talking about mules in United States history, and it's something he knows loads about. You become something of a mule advocate in this book. You give a really impressive history of the mule in the U.S. as both an economic right. driver and as a largely misunderstood animal. Uh, will you talk to us a little bit about their ties to George Washington and their place in the early financial landscape of America? Sure. I love books like this because they give you an opportunity to revisit a subject that when they finish the chapter, readers go, wow, I didn't know that, but I sort of should have known that. And um, so with the mule, what was interesting is uh, the political economics of the globe at the time very interesting. We really needed mules um, by the uh, turn of the 19th century because we were now conquering the Alleghenies and that first Trans-Appalachian push into Ohio and Illinois, and then we finally then go into to the Rocky 
shouldn't have them for a good reason. Horses are just not as reliable. Uh, uh, their hooves aren't as good in rocky terrain. They tire more easily, et cetera. They don't have that enough of that feral genetic makeup that um, you get from the burrow side of a mule. So what had happened was we had always known the Europeans had these great draft mules, with the draft mule being a big, big animal uh, made from a, a the, the sire would be a, a mammoth jack. And we knew that the Europeans had them, but up until the Revolutionary War, the Spanish and the French, who were the main breeders of these great animals, would not allow them uh, into the United States, into the colonies, the English colonies, because they'd been warring forever with Great Britain, and they didn't, they didn't want to help the British colony. As soon as uh, George Washington had been successful at uh, ousting the British from the United States, um, the King of Spain... And um, uh, Lafayette, the, um, the, the, the great ally of uh, Washington, the French ally of Washington uh, during the Revolution, from Spain and France were sent a sample uh, breeding stock. Um, the one that came from France is called Royal Gift, and the one that came from, um, actually Royal Gift came from Spain, and then uh, uh, Maltese Jack came from, uh, from France. And that was the initial breeding stock that was sent directly to George Washington, who had a lot of land in the West that knew that he was going to need European-style mules to, uh, to develop that property and to get to that property. And uh, George Washington himself began, began the first breeding farm for mules in America. By the time he died, there were 60 working mules on Mount Vernon alone, and he was sending his sires around to the mammoth jacks that are bred to a, a female horse. Well, they're kind of uh, the unsung heroes of American history. Like, you don't hear about the great mules that helped build the country, but they really did. Um, yeah. Um, they, they, they were huge. And, and, and my book is about a lot of unsung heroes, like my sister Whitman, who was the um, evangelist who first crossed the trail in 1836 and sent back these when it was very daring and dangerous to do so. And there was a lot of prejudice against it because the West was not considered a safe place for a white woman because um, it was Indian country and the great American desert and so forth. Um, and she wrote back this series of letters that convinced Americans that it would be safe for women and children to cross the trail. She really opened up the trail. She's completely forgotten today. So my uh, research, my walking out on the trail and reading all the primary sources and then actually crossing it by wagon, you really learn how arduous it was to get these wagons up and down the mountains and so forth. Um, reveals a lot of unsung heroes. There's it's just there's just huge amounts of history that we've never confronted and we don't see anymore um, because it's not the kind of thing taught in history class, I guess. Well, yeah, and I I really love that there are many places in the book where you really break down some of the incorrect myths that have circulated for years, as you mentioned. Mm-hmm. Um, Narcissa Whitman, I loved that whole section. Mm-hmm. You break down the myth of the mule being an obstinate and ornery creature. You talk about how the Native Americans really were quite cooperative for the most part until they realized that they were really getting a sh- the shaft. Um, right, right. Well, there's something fascinating about this that I mentioned a little bit in the book, and, but, but it's sort of a subtext all the way through. This is really fascinating to me. So I studied history a lot. I kind of became a writer instead of getting a PhD in history. Sort of thing. But one of the things that historians do, published historians do, is they sort of 
can't have a bigger than big personality approach to history. So if you want to understand America's expansion westward, you, know, you read a book like Bernard DeVoto's uh, decision, year decision, 1846. And it's all about Thomas Hart Benton and, and um, the forces in Congress and the, the politics and the, the Pierce administration and the Buchanan administration and so forth. And it's big events, big guys. But what historians don't do is they don't go back and look very carefully and they don't, it's not the kind of thing that gives them academic prestige to look at, well, how did people live? You know, if you're getting across the channel and you get to Missouri and, you know, um, more than 10,000 people want to cross that year and every one of them crossed with, with green mules that were not properly trained and they were basically fleeced by the mule brokers of Missouri. Um, what did that do to life? You know, what was your life like on the trail when you were exposed to an almost daily desperate scramble for water, et cetera? Um, and that's the kind of thing that interests me and what I get into in the book. It's like, forget about the politics and, you know, the bigger picture and how immoral some people consider the Mexican-American war, which took so much of this territory. Um, Think about that for a moment. How did people actually live accomplishing this 2,000-mile trek across the country? And to me, that's a lot more important stuff sometimes than the, than the big picture and the big politics. Yeah, I mean, that's the kind of stuff we love to talk about as well. It's like it's it's easy to see the big broad strokes and the the sort of catalysts that happen on the world stage. But at the same time, you cannot lose sight of the fact that there are living, breathing people in the trenches, so to speak, that never get any recognition. But they're really the ones that were making history. Um, so I I love that you touch on that. A little um, one little thing is uh, the wind, you know, mm-hmm. it, the way we live today is we move from one overbuilt air-conditioned igloo to the next. You know, you get out of an air-conditioned car and you go into an air-conditioned atrium and then at night you go home to this, this place that has all these whirring little motors that, that solve all your problems. And you're kind of alienated from nature. And even if you get caught in a tornado or something, um, for most of your life, you're you're protected, you're isolated, you're hermetically sealed from the real forces of nature. And then you get in the covered wagon, and as soon as you get west of, say, middle Nebraska, the wind is blowing at you 35, 40 miles a day, 45 miles an hour, um, all day. And we've completely lost the DNA, we've completely lost the memory of how exhausting it is to sit on a wagon seat exposed to this wind, and it's always right in your face because this prevailing wind is the westerly wind. How dehydrating, how exhausting, how even depressing it can be just to be in a howling wind all day, you know? And this trip was, as you mentioned earlier, arduous. It was incredibly ambitious, and you had a lot of challenges along the way. But one episode that I found so affecting uh, was the struggle to get the mule team in the wagon up California Hill in Nebraska. And so for our listeners, that's a climb of about 240 feet over the course of a mile and a half. And your brother Nick made the case that you should take this route rather than an eight-mile detour around it. Can you talk to us a little bit about how that challenge played out? Because it really was like I, I got goosebumps reading that. I was so terrified for all of yeah. you. 
Yeah. <laughs> um, it's amazing. It was scary. It was, it was scary. Yeah. What happened was, so we got there and, uh, California Hills, one of these very important choke points of the trail, which was the pioneers at that point have to make, it's near Brewer, Nebraska, and the pioneers have to make a transition from the river drainage, the river bottomlands of the South Platte to the North Platte across a very high plateau. It's the only clear country. The rest of it is very ravined. And to reach that plateau, there's just a single hill, which got the name California Hill because you had to conquer this difficult hill uh, to, to make it to California. And we followed the Oregon Trail to the California Trail. But at any rate, um, we get there and I'm explaining to Nick, you know, well, this place was busy with hundreds of wagons every day during the summer of the pioneer years and blah, blah, blah. And there's a big plaque there and everything. And Nick looks up at the hill and he goes, well, I can put a, I can put these mules up that hill. And I'm going, Nick, no, no, no. We've already come almost 500 miles. Let's not, you know, and he's telling me, you know, this is a podcast and I'll send the SDC rules apply. You know, he's telling me common phrases for being a girly man, uh, kind of thing that, that guys use. And, uh, but finally I relent and I say, okay, it was this, this sort of pivotal moment of the trip. I went off on my own and kind of stared at the horizon. And my conclusion was, well, I wouldn't even be this far if it wasn't for my brother Nick, so I better trust him. So we go back and we climb the first hill. And this is what you learn about the West. From the base terrain down below, you see the first hill and then you get up there. And there's two more really steeper, much steeper hills. And so we got to the top and even Nick was going, ooh, Jesus, you know. But he still insisted that he could get the mules up there. And there was no turning back now because the trail is too narrow to turn the wagon around on. So Nick just said, Nick, I'm going to put these mules on that hill. Don't worry. Up on that ridge. <laughs> and when we get into camp tonight, they go, yeah. Yeah, Nick, what? He goes, you can take your medication. Okay. <laughs> so, but it was really rough. We, we were kind of, it, the mules were straining. They were, it was huge, uh, embedded tumbleweed, the rotten tumbleweed that they had to stumble through. And, you know, we literally reached the top, just moving an inch at a time and was trying to figure out how to throw the brake on if, if, if the mules gave up and couldn't get up and prevent the wagon from sliding backwards and pulling the mules on top of us. And so, um, yeah, it was, if you had goosebumps just reading it, you can imagine. But I was, we both got to the top and we could barely breathe. We were so, of course, the mules were heaving too, but we were just so um, overstimulated. Of course. Uh, yeah, it's an amazing section of the book. I really was so affected by it. And then you actually summited another ridge, Rocky Ridge in Wyoming, which you had been told flat out yeah. was something you were not going to be able to do with a mule team. Uh, and yeah. you, you once yeah. again, with Nick's amazing abilities... Uh, managed to do this undoable thing. How did accomplishing these seemingly impossible tasks as part of this journey really affect you in the long run and even your relationship with your brother? Yeah. Well, they, they affected my relationship with my brother because I trusted him a lot more and learned. I mean, I knew he was a great driver, but, you know, I just didn't know he was that great a driver of mules. Um, I think the big, the, the big change in me is how it affected me is um, I'm kind of a dreamy guy. I don't mind taking on impractical things. I think that if you take on an adventure like this, 
it's not so much for adventure's sake, it's for um, what are you going to learn, what are you going to see. And what I learned on this trip is that um, it's okay to be impulsive and, and decide, be very demanding and decide, I'm going to do this no matter what. Because you can always fix the things that you didn't do right, you know, the many failures that you made. We were constantly rebuilding the wagon and doing things to the wagon that we didn't think of before we left. And you can always fix a bad decision. You know, we, we put so much stress on our life today, especially these young millennials. I, I kind of worry about them. You know, you have to network properly. You have to get the right internship. You know, you have to have it all planned out perfectly. And you don't really, I mean, you can make mid-post directions as often as you want. So that, that was a big change for me. Take a risk and then figure things out as you get there. And in fact, when we got to Rocky Ridge, which is just this wall of rock that goes up over um, a Wyoming mountain that's very hard to climb. It's like a staircase of rock. It's very hard to climb with a team of mules pulling two wagons. It wasn't actually that difficult. And we met some people up there. There was a Mormon couple who were going back up to kind of visit with a pilgrimage to the shrine of Rocky Ridge, which is where a lot of Mormons died in the winter of 1856 because they got caught up there in the snow. And they were horsemen too, and they they stood on either end of the ridge when we figured out a path that we could make across these rocks and signaled us to keep on the right line and everything. Um, and they, they're more than, so their police structure is very strong, and they're willing to say things that the other religious people in America wouldn't. But they, they believed that they were angels sent there to help us, uh, and that we were angels sent there to show them Rocky Ridge really had been conquered by a covered wagon. And uh, I didn't, I don't particularly think that way and believe that way, but I did that day. How could and you not? So, <laughs> yeah. Make a decision, do it. And uh, if, if there's something wrong with the decision, you can fix it later. I love it. I think that's good life advice. Um, at the beginning, the very beginning of the book is you're kind of setting up the whole kind of narrative that's going to unfold before us. You wrote this one thing that just charmed me to pieces, which is that you wrote about how you are a history buff and how you quote, I you wrote, quote, I break by rote at every historical marker. And I just loved that. Um, and I know that a lot of the markers that you encountered on this trip inspired the stories that intertwine with your own in the book. And I know that, um, you know, this ended up being edited, of course. And I'm wondering if there were any of these stories that you encountered along the way at these historical markers that ended up edited out, edited out of the book, but that you really wish you could have kept in. Sure. There was a lot of things like that. Um, one, one thing in particular that I remember was um, the way you tell where the trail really is, is um, uh, grave markers. Graves really tell you where the trail is. And there's a, historian in Wyoming and Randy Brown, who's this amazing guy who's uh, basically documented every grave that can be found on the Oregon Trail and written a book about it. I had that book along with me, and it gives coordinates and directions to each grave. If you know where the graves are, you know where the pioneers were at that time, because they vary a lot. There was a main set of roughs, but they might vary the route um, to find better forage for the draft animals or to get out of the dust of um, the wagon train ahead of them. And if someone died, they tended to bury them very close to the trail and if they were in a hurry to move on, they had to make a certain amount of progress every day, even if someone died. So um, 
there were a lot of grave sites that I, I wish that I could have written more about. And I have to wonder, and you may have already covered this, but what is the one thing above all others that you w- wish for readers to take away from this book? I think that everybody has their, kind of in the closing lines of the book, but I think everybody has it, their Oregon Trail. You know, there's something that, you know, don't, don't put things off. Um, you know, if there's something you've always wanted to do and you're not doing it, um, and you're, bored at your job or whatever. There's always a way to do it if you want to do it. You know. Um, I also think the second thing I hope people take away is um, I don't. I don't really like what this society has become right now. I mean, you go into a restaurant and there's a family there, and everybody's staring at these little black boxes in front of it in their hand. You know, um, we're living so much off social media and websites and you know, junky little TV shows and, and our cell phones that um, we're not really communing with each other as people and we're not really living. We're, we're just we're just sort of attached with the brain to this um, cell phone device. And I have to wonder, um, because you kind of became like a piece of living history, one in your own right, because to have a mule team do this trip and particularly the things that people said mule teams were not going to be able to do, you kind of made your own mm-hmm. history. So I wonder, did this journey overall change your relationship with history or how you view it? Well, it's interesting. Um, I believe actually that the book is more important than the adventure itself because the adventure itself, because I had like a previous adventure when I was a teenager and my brother and I, little Piper Cub that we rebuilt in our barn to California and back. And we, it was only when we got to California that we realized that the Associated Press was calling up the youngest aviators ready to fly coast to coast. And I, I realized when writing the book, and it's much harder to write the book than to have the adventure, um, that this would just be some little cocktail chatter thing, some little thing maybe some of my old friends would remember, etc. years from now. Without the book, without the printed document of the book um, and people being able to share that adventure and share that history the history didn't occur so there's all these things about the Oregon Trail that I've now revealed to people that, that didn't wasn't part of their knowledge base uh, before I decided to write the book and so the, the, the book is, is actually the adventure itself the book is the medium that makes that adventure um, available to people. So that was my longish but really delightful chat with Ranker Buck, and he's the kind of person I would just love to chatter with for hours. I had such a fun time talking to him, and I really just adore the man. So hopefully we will maybe get to have him for a visit again in the future, because I know he might want to do that as well. Uh, I will say, like, just from the point of view of his writing, it, I really connected with it, which is one of the reasons I was so excited to do this interview. His writing style is just one that naturally hits in all the right places for me. He's got this really, um, I, I we cut it out of the interview, but he has this really unpretentious way about him. And he's like, nobody sits down and says, I'm going to write a pretentious sentence. I don't even know what that means. Uh, but, but it's like he has this beautifully crafted uh, 
turn of phrase that he manages. His his writing is just beautifully written. It has a lovely cadence, but he's so frank and honest about himself and his relationship with his brother and their relationship with this project. And I think that's why it's come up in a lot of reviews that you'll read that it's so unpretentious. And that's why he just, you don't feel like it's somebody glossing things over to make themselves look great. It's like you get a very honest picture of what those months out on the wagon train were like for him. And it was just spectacular. I love talking with him. Thanks for bearing with us on the audio on this one. Yeah, not ideal, but uh, an ideal interview subject, just the same. And the book is called The Oregon Trail, and it is out now, so you can pick it up anywhere. And I really do highly recommend it. And now I'm going to actually keep the um, the listener mail short, since we ran a little long on that interview. And this one is from our listener, Jean. And she says, I have been catching up on some of your past podcast episodes, and I was listening to the Halloween Candy podcast this morning after hearing some listener mail referencing it in another episode. The description of Sweetest Day made me remember May Day that we celebrated in Omaha, Nebraska as kids, but I haven't heard of anyone else celebrating it as I moved across the country. May Day is May 1st, and we would traditionally make May Day baskets filled with candy or other sweets or small gifts to give to our friends on May 1st, but the trick was to leave them on their doorstep without them noticing. Kind of a ding-dong ditch method. My sisters and I were always very excited every May Day to open our front door and find little baskets of goodies sitting there from our friends. I remember we would sometimes use Dixie cups filled with popcorn and some candy, along with a little note saying who it was for and who it was from. Did anyone else do this and where did it come from? Sounds like a good idea for a podcast. Thank you for expanding my knowledge. I love your podcast and the energy and excitement about learning from both of you. Um, Jean, I will tell you, I fondly remember May Day myself when I was living in the Pacific Northwest as a kid. It was always my thing because I was a little bit of a suck up to make sure that my teachers had May Day baskets. Um, <laughs> so I remember it fondly, but I, like you, I remember when we moved to Florida from, um, from Washington, they didn't know what I was talking about. So it may be as isolated pockets. Tracy, did you do May Day as a kid? Nope. Nope. Uh, we have to map this out. So if any of our other listeners did this, and maybe it's an, an, an age thing, a generational thing. I'm a few years older than Tracy, but not drastically. Um, we should make the map of May Day celebrations because I'm quite fascinated that some of us did it and some don't. In the meantime, I'll see if I can look up some other information about where it originated and what happened to it. Uh, it could be one of those grassroots things that somebody thought was fun and some of some places it caught on and some it did not. Uh, if you would like to write to us and share your stories of May Day or some other delightful candy and treat related uh, activity that maybe other people didn't do, you can do that at historypodcast at howstuffworks.com. We're also at Facebook.com slash Missed in History, on Twitter at Missed in History, at Pinterest.com slash Missed in History. We're at Missed in History.tumblr.com and on Instagram at Missed in History. Uh, if you would like to do additional research on almost anything you can think of, you can do that at our parent site, which is HowStuffWorks.com. Or you can visit Tracy and I at MissedInHistory.com for show notes for all of the episodes we've been on together, plus an archive of every episode ever of all time of Stuff You Missed in History class, as well as occasional other goodies. Uh, and again, you can do that at MissedInHistory.com or visit our parent site, HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.